Happy Thanksgiving. Seems as though if you don't say that on Thanksgiving weekend, there's something, something wrong. So, let's just get that out of the way. What was your Thanksgiving celebration like? Were you up early running a 5K? Somebody in my family was, but it was not I. Yeah. Did you have a Norman Rockwell-esque table loaded with goodies of all kinds? I actually met a man this Thanksgiving weekend who does not like green bean casserole. I've never encountered such a thing. We sent him out of the house very quickly. (laughs) Did you enjoy a tryptophan-induced coma masquerading as an afternoon nap? Hmm. A game of flag football at some point? Some families do that together. Did you go around the circle and say what you were thankful for? Many families do that sort of thing. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) I take it that we all know what it means to say thank you. We're going to talk about that some today, though, because Christianity historically has had a way of, you might say, celebrating Thanksgiving That is, of giving thanks, of thinking about what's going on when we give thanks. Christians have had a way of thinking about that that is a little more complex than the ordinary thank you that we all know so well in our day-to-day experience. So we're going to reflect on that some today. In typical Christian fashion, I have three things to say about Thanksgiving or about the way Christians have tended to reflect on this. Um, For Christians have done this in at least three different ways. And we find, I think, that they will move us step by step deeper and deeper into the heart of Christianity. So, three points we'll be looking at today. Let me go ahead and tell you what they are. Uh, I would like to do that so that if you doze off midway through, you'll know where you are when you come back. Um, So three points today. We'll talk about Thanksgiving as memory. We'll talk about Thanksgiving as anticipation. And we'll talk about Thanksgiving as faith. Those are our three. Memory, anticipation, and faith. Just one more point I'll make before we begin. It was a beautiful thing, wasn't it, to see Dave Daly and his whole family up here leading in worship today? Today, when Micah, my 13-year-old, found out that I was preaching, he quickly found a friend to spend the night with and is at a different church this morning. So, you be ready for that, for what's to come. In any case, let's think some about Thanksgiving. Um, two short points, and then the third point we'll spend a little more time on. Think about Thanksgiving as memory. For each of these points, I've got one primary text that we'll be giving our attention to in the Word of God. So if you would, for this first point, take a look with me at Psalm 136. It's a psalm that lots of us will recognize 
It talks about giving thanks to the Lord in the most common, most obvious sense that the word thanksgiving holds. Psalm 136 begins in this way. We won't read the whole psalm, but you'll get the idea pretty quickly. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. All right, we get the idea. You remember this is the psalm that repeats that same line. His love endures forever all the way through. And the beginning verses, which I've just read, and also the closing verse, verse uh, 26, tell us that this is a psalm about thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, in this, I take it, most obvious sense, is what we all understand, right? It's all about recognizing the good things that have come, that, ha- that have happened in the past, things that God has done for us in the past, that continue to impinge upon us in the present. Probably, if we went around the circle asking what we're thankful for this year, we found ourselves thinking primarily in this way, thinking about things that God has done in the past and that continue to benefit us today. Isn't that what Thanksgiving is? Thanksgiving in that sense is memory brought up to date, you might say, because it's something that we encounter here and now. If we went through this psalm, we would find this repeatedly going on. We give thanks to the Lord Why do we do that? By the time we're in verse 3, we're thinking about the one who alone does great wonders. You hear how what God has done captures our attention. Of course, it's God's character that's expressed through what he has done. So we praise him, but we also give thanks for what we've seen him accomplish. And then the psalm as a whole moves through that. Um, Verse 5, through his understanding, he made the heavens. Verse 10, he's the one who struck down the firstborn of Egypt on behalf of his people. Verse uh, 16, he led his people through the desert. You get the idea, right? Repeatedly, when we are thinking about Thanksgiving as memory, we find ourselves going to the past and then bringing it up to date. Have you done that this Thanksgiving? Probably so. If not, let me encourage you to do it. And not, of course, just on Thanksgiving Day. What has God done for you this past year, this past week, throughout your life? Are you giving thanks today, especially for a new spouse? Or for a still fresh baby that you're not used to holding. Or for a new friend. Or for a new job. Or for success at an old job. Or for a good report on a medical examination. Or for good prospects as you look forward to what's coming in the next six months or a thousand other things, all sorts of things that we constantly recognize God's hand of goodness 
kind of overshadowing us in a thousand ways, sometimes in dramatic ways. Has there been deliverance for you in the midst of an automobile accident? And yet you walked away from it or someone you know escaped from that, right? Or, or whatever it is, you know, you, you can spend a long time naming the blessings of God. Some of them blessings, of course, that we live with day by day. When we were here Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night for the Thanksgiving Eve service, the person sitting next to me said at the end of the service, boy, it's good that we're only talking about things that have happened in the last year where we've seen God's blessing. Because if you opened it up wider, every person here would simply say, my spouse, my family, my church, right? A thing that's just sort of constantly a blessing. Isn't that the way it works? It's not just particular events, but God's ongoing goodness displayed to us in the things that he's done. Perhaps we forget those things too easily. We do tend to be easily distracted people, don't we? This is part of the reason I take it that Christians have always said that giving thanks is a kind of discipline. It's a habit that we need to cultivate in ourselves. Let me encourage you, as God's people have always done, to grow in thankfulness, to remember and bring the memory up to date. You with me? Thanks be to God. Point one, check. Can I just warn you that they get longer as time goes on, so don't get your hopes up. All right. Thanksgiving as memory. There is another sense in which Thanksgiving pretty clearly functions for Christians of all kinds as a kind of anticipation. That is, not so much thinking about the past and bringing it up to date, but instead, in light of the past and the present, we look forward to the future having a certain kind of character. Thanksgiving, in that sense, looks ahead, not just behind. It's rooted in the same character of God, the God who has blessed in the past, has done so because he's, he's, he's fundamentally good. The God whose goodness is so evident in our past is still good today. He does not change. That goodness has manifested itself in the promises that he makes. We will see his promises fulfilled. Do you hear the way that thanksgiving naturally looks ahead then as well? The most interesting place, I think, maybe the most poignant place where you find this in the Bible, uh, invites us to turn to another text. Point two, text number two. Look with me uh, at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This is a story in the gospel where we are near the end of Jesus' life. And in particular, I'm looking at the account here in Luke 22 of what we usually call the Last Supper. This is the occasion where Jesus institutes 
the ritual practice of eating bread and drinking from the cup that, if you have any background at all in the church, you know is, is common for, for all Christian traditions. It goes by a variety of different names. Um, most commonly, I suppose, we call it in our congregation the Lord's Supper or sometimes Holy Communion. Lots of people call it that. Probably the most common name for that ritual in worldwide Christianity, probably the most common name is to call it the Eucharist. Some of you will recognize that. Uh, The Eucharist is sort of a high churchy kind of name for this celebration. But it refers to Jesus inviting his followers to eat and drink in this particular way. And he has set the pattern for that here in Luke 22. 22. The word Eucharist comes from the Greek word that means to give thanks. And this celebration is referred to then as the Eucharist, as the thanksgiving, because of the role that thanksgiving plays in the account. Just look briefly at at a story that we probably all recognize. Uh, Luke 22, beginning at uh, verse 14, let's say. The disciples have gathered, and here we are. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover celebration with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks. He eucharizoed, if you were speaking Greek with sort of a weird modern accent. Um, He gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks, he eucharizoed, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. And so on the story goes. It's a beautiful and poignant scene we might be inclined to overlook the Eucharist, the thanksgiving component in what's going on here. Because we recognize that Jesus has his eye fixed on the body that will be broken and the bread which somehow symbolizes that. Those are important words. But it's very interesting That all through church history, and even here in the word of God itself, thanksgiving has been especially something that is associated with this series of events. It is called Eucharist, right? It's called the thanksgiving. When Jesus gave thanks, was he merely doing what I do when I thank the Lord for the food before we have dinner? Was he just saying, thank you, we've got something to eat, that's wonderful, thanks for the hands that have prepared it, that's great. I don't mean to belittle that, but was that all that Jesus was doing? Or was this a thanks that looked ahead? A thanksgiving 
that holds tight the words, this is my body. Is that what thanksgiving involves here? You see what I mean? It's not a thanksgiving that merely looks back. It looks ahead. And it's rooted all through this narrative, all through this little account. In fact, quick, no extra charge for this, right? But um, this, this series of the, the language, including this thanksgiving that describes the account here in the Lord's Supper and its institution, turns out to be something that is expressed all through Scripture as a distinctive in a distinctive association with this event of Christ. In other words, look again at verse 19, right? When we are told by Luke, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, this is my body. Do you hear that series of verbs with thanksgiving right at the heart of it? What's the name of this ritual? The Eucharist, the thanksgiving Isn't it interesting that if you were to go back in Luke's gospel, uh, 10 chapters or so, back in in chapter 9. All right, I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. That's not quite 10 chapters. In any case, um, think again about what's going on there with those verbs in chapter 22. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. This is my body. And then I go back and I look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 16. This is in the context of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Listen. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Do those verbs sound familiar? Do you hear that? The same thing that's going on in the Lord's Supper, the thanksgiving at the center of the Lord's Supper, works its way backwards in Luke's mind so that Luke uses that same language when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Isn't that interesting? There's a lot going on in this thanksgiving. You even get the same thing a couple of chapters after Luke 22. If we were to go ahead to Luke 24, we would find there in after Jesus' resurrection, you remember this story, when the disciples uh, that are on their way to Emmaus encountered the risen Lord. Do you remember this? And they don't remember, they don't recognize who he is. Remember that scene? And they invite this stranger. It's Jesus, we know. They invite this stranger to their home. And then we're told Luke 24, verse 30. Again, think about this. When he was at the table with them, Jesus now, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. Do you hear again what's going on there? We have thanksgiving at the center of this act that has to do with bread and with, and with cup being given to us. Do you think it's just thanksgiving for bread? Or does it seem as though this thanksgiving is all about Christ giving himself to us? You see that? 
Thanksgiving never merely looks back when you're thinking in a Christian way. It always looks ahead. It anticipates something almost unimaginably great. The fullness of salvation. All right. Thanksgiving. Uh, Memory, thanksgiving, anticipation. It looks back and, of course, remembers and brings things to the present. It looks ahead. And we see the fullness of salvation in this ritual, in, um, in what is laid before us, because this is my body given for you. Thanksgiving. There's a lot going on with Thanksgiving, isn't there? Maybe it's not just green bean casserole. Can we take one more step? I warned you now. The third step is the long one. We're interested now not merely in thanksgiving as memory. Not merely in thanksgiving as a kind of anticipation. We're not just recalling what God has done and celebrating it. We are not just expecting to see the greatness of God and looking forward to it. We also are in some way believing it in a way that strikes me as at least interesting, somewhat puzzling, maybe jaw-dropping. One more text, one more primary text that we'll look at. Move forward, if you would, into the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 is the text that I'm especially, especially interested in for today. We'll spend a little more time here. We are looking primarily at just one verse. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, which is really just part of a sentence and is usually translated that in most, in most translations. I'm using the New International Version today where that sentence, that part of a sentence reads, Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think with me about that. Think about what we're going to do with these these words, this partial sentence, by considering, interestingly now, the larger context in which all of Ephesians 5 is written. We get these words about giving thanks, but in a context that begins, I don't know where to, where to cut this off because you can do it all over the place, begins maybe back in the middle of uh, chapter 4, where, interestingly, we find Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul, Jesus is in there somewhere too, Uh, we find Paul saying in verse 17, now think about this, Paul says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Think about the way that that sets a context for an awful lot of what's going to follow. Paul has in mind some sort of, he's giving practical instruction in a context in which there are all sorts of things drawing or pushing or pulling us 
away from where our hearts ought to be. Do you hear that? You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You find the same sort of thing as you go up a little bit further into chapter 5. Paul writes about this, um, uh, about how we live as children of the light. Look at the way he says this in in chapter 5, verse 3. Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Do you hear the sorts of things that come with living as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking? You see that? It's a context that has trouble built into it. But uh, chapter 5, verse 8. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Remember this language? There's a conflict that's at work here. And you used to be on one side, but now you're on another side. Live that way, brothers and sisters. All right, this is a good, challenging sort of thing to say. By the time we get up to verse 15, we've we've come in a certain sense to a kind of climax in this. Read with me verses 15 up to our verse, verse 20. And let's see what happens here. Paul says, again, in this context of trouble, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Here's our verse. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. I wonder whether you catch the buildup that's present here in a text like this. The days are evil. You were once... But now you are. Live as what... But the days are evil. You get the sense of tension, of conflict? When we get to verses 19 and 20 in that area, right? When we're told, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Friends, this is not a happy, clappy kind of verse. Oh, let's have fun and praise the Lord together. This is Paul giving combat instructions. The days are evil. Therefore, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Does that sound like combat instructions? See, there is something about worship that does things to us. So that we live as the kind of people we're made to be. And then, of course, right alongside that. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. All right. This is the context in which we're thinking about thanksgiving there in verse 20. Paul says... As clearly here as anywhere, I think, that thanksgiving is a weapon. Thanksgiving is is 
a discipline. Thanksgiving is something you enter into and you use it in order to become what you ought to be. And here's what he says. Give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, in fact, the puzzling thing about this verse that initially attracted my attention to it when I was thinking about thanksgiving. I wonder what exactly it means to give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, lots of people say, kind of a puzzling idea. It doesn't exactly fit into this the, the ordinary way that we use that language, right? Um, we sometimes talk about doing things in the name of the Lord or in the name of other things altogether. But it's not exactly clear how it works in this, in this particular text. It can't mean something like, um, on behalf of, right? We, we sometimes use in the name of in that way. If I can't get home in order to give Heidi flowers on her birthday, then I invite someone else perhaps to stop off and say, Ah, these flowers I deliver in the name of your husband. That would not be good, but still, it's the best I can do, you know, sometimes. Okay, but you get the idea? Sometimes in the name of means doing something in behalf of someone who can't be there, something like that. That's clearly not what this means. We're not giving thanks on behalf of Jesus, right? More often in the New Testament, we use this phrase, in the name, in the name of Jesus, to mean something like, by the authority of Jesus. I gather that when we ask for something in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask, we approach God the Father because... Jesus gives us authority to do so. We are in him and he has established the path that takes us there. And that's the one we walk. But are we giving thanks by the authority that Jesus gives us? I'm not sure that that works exactly either. Everything that breathes, even before the fall, right? Everything just by virtue of being created ought to be giving thanks to God for his goodness and blessing. Is there something about authority there? I'm not sure that there is. Maybe there is. So let me tell you, I'm exploring this and lots of folks do, I think. I mean, there's lots of different conversation about this. So I've got an idea of what to do with this text. Let me tell you, I'm not sure it's right. But it might be. So I'll give it to you and then you can run from it if you think it doesn't sound good. But it's helpful to me to think of it in something like this, like this way. What does it mean to say we give thanks in the name of Jesus? I find myself, this is my idea, I find myself especially drawn to another way that we talk about in the name the name that you find in a very familiar context in Matthew 28. Do you remember this? When we are told, right at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, 
that we are to baptize or to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? We are baptized in the name of something. What does our baptism um, well, what does the phrase in the name of mean when we're thinking about baptism like that? Somehow, once again, it doesn't seem to me merely on behalf of. It doesn't have to do primarily with having authority to be baptized. It seems as though instead, um, it seems as though, I'm thinking about a variety of texts. Um, Think about the way that baptism is pictured in many places in the New Testament as, this is what, what happens when we baptize in water, right? As a kind of entrance into death. You recognize that? Right? We are plunged, a baptized person is plunged underwater, is down into the darkness, down into the grave, down into death, and emerges with life. How do you emerge with life? Well, because when you're plunged down into death, it's not you who die. Instead, you're plunged into the one who has died in your behalf. Does this sound familiar to you? We are in Christ. To be baptized in the name of Jesus means to be somehow placed into his death, which becomes this pathway to resurrection then. You get the idea? Something about entering into, we might say, into a larger reality than ourselves. Something bigger, something stronger, something more alive, something more real. That's what it is to be baptized in the name of Jesus or the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What if we take that kind of glimpse and we think about what it means to give thanks in the name of Jesus? I wonder whether this giving thanks involves a sort of a sort of approach to Christ in which we find God's reality God's truth displayed in Jesus, God's act accomplished in Christ. This is the larger thing into which our thanksgiving is invited to enter. The aim is not, you might say, that we should understand what Jesus has done and then master that so that our thinking, our understanding is the larger thing that grasps what's happened. Oh no, the larger thing is not my understanding. It is instead that God has done something in Christ that has changed the world forever. And we enter into that. We do it in baptism. Do we do it in thanksgiving? When we are giving thanks in the name of Jesus, I wonder whether we are 
entering into a reality that is larger than all of the particular things we think of to give thanks for. Something so large that we don't fully understand it. We give thanks for it by faith. Giving thanks is an act of faith. I don't understand the fullness of what has taken place. I give thanks. You get the idea? Giving thanks as faith in what I do not fully understand, I do not master, I bow before. Giving thanks. Here is the principle, if you want to put it in sort of a direct way, right? The principle is this. God is always doing more things and higher things and greater things than what we recognize to give thanks for. Do you see what I mean by that? There are particular things that we give thanks for, and we ought to do that. There are particular things we look forward to and give thanks for, and we ought to do that. There are other matters that God is at work in that we would never guess, perhaps would not even like if we saw it with our, own, with our present eyes. And yet, God is working wonders. He is always doing more things, doing higher things, doing greater things than what we know. Giving thanks is an act of faith. It's accepting something, even believing something, being grateful for something that we do not get. All right, I've said this is my idea. I do think it's not merely my idea. This is the sort of thing, of course, that you get absolutely all over the place in God's word. I'm not going to look at particular texts, but think about how often we find, uh, we find the gift of God being greater than what anyone had ever imagined or thought. Can you be grateful for something unimaginable, unthinkable, unspeakable? Well, people have been for a long time. And you discover gradually bits of the greatness. Isn't this what goes on? Just to refer to one passage in scripture. Think about the whole letter to the Hebrews, right? Which we've been spending time on in our, in our uh, the pastor Steve has been walking us through in Hebrews 11. But the whole book of Hebrews is about a greatness that no one understood when it was happening. You see that? It turns out that this one who was coming and doing unimaginable things is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, a higher priesthood, a greater sacrifice, the sort of thing that nobody guessed when Jesus was walking around on planet Earth. The letter to the Hebrews says... But that's what our story is. That's where our life is. It's in something greater. 
than anybody ever understood. To give thanks is always to believe things larger than what you get. Again, I said I'm not going to quote lots of texts. Can you remember how many places in, um, in the gospel story this sort of thing is going on? Where God, as it turns out, is doing large things, far more than anybody had ever imagined. He didn't tell us about it beforehand. Or rather, he did. We go back and we see prophecies and things like that. Isn't it interesting that all of those things people recognized only after the work was done? God acted first in ways that left observers whom we encounter in the New Testament absolutely puzzled. Think about what happens when, this came up in a class that I was teaching here this week, right? Think about what happens when, uh, in the New Testament, when Jesus' early followers start to believe that he is the Messiah. Isn't that great? Isn't that something to give thanks for? Isn't that a glorious thing? Isn't it interesting that Jesus very frequently finds people saying, like Peter, for example, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Very often, Jesus' response is, do you remember? Shh, don't tell anybody. It seems to be that your understanding of Messiah will not help to advance the cause of Messiah. You see what I mean by that? Do you remember? In one of those passages, when Peter says most explicitly, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's great, you've got it, finally you've got it. How many verses later is it? Four verses later, that Peter is rebuking Jesus because he's saying that he's going to go to the cross. Do you remember this? Peter's understanding, Peter's gratitude for Messiah was all wrong. Or rather, it was right, but God was doing more than Peter had ever guessed. Saying that Jesus was Messiah was for Peter not an act of understanding exactly. You see what I mean? It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Again, don't you find this everywhere? Don't you find this in the language of kingdom that you get in the gospel story? Everybody was grateful that Jesus was coming and the kingdom was coming, except that they had no idea at all what the kingdom meant. Jesus had to teach them that the hard way. They watched him die. And then be raised, of course, right? There are greater things, but God's always doing more than what we grasp. Don't we find this in the very language of Son of God, as we encounter it in the New Testament, in the gospel story. This is always interesting to me because we tend to think in our kind of uh, common interaction that to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to make an astonishingly large claim about Christ. Now listen, we're right about that. Except that there were other sons of God that the Jews believed in, right? 
you know that Israel in the Old Testament is God's son, right? You know that the king, especially King David, but whoever the king is on Israel's throne is referred to as God's son. This was not an impossible way of talking. But interesting things happen when you take Son of God and you take it into the gospel story, when you find it on the lips of Jesus. It turns out that he's doing something kind of strange. In fact, strange enough that it took early Christians a long time to find a way of talking about it. Listen, can I invite you to take with me one short detour? I promise it's short a short detour away from the text of Scripture in order to get a grasp on the meaning of Scripture. Would you pull out your hymnal, if you've got one handy, and look with me at the, at the back of your hymnal at page 846. Page 846 in the back of the Trinity hymnal. This is the Nicene Creed. Some of you are giving me kind of a smirky look because you know that when I lead in worship, we frequently appeal to the Nicene Creed. We use this to talk about our common faith with the people of God everywhere. All right, it's true. I like the Nicene Creed. But some very interesting things are going on in the Creed in Nicaea. Maybe more interesting than we easily recognize, right? Some of you know some of the background here. It's described down on the bottom of that page. This is a 4th century creed that comes out of a council in the middle of a century, the 300s, where there was lots and lots of interaction and conflict and things related to uh, who exactly this Jesus is. And it all had to do with what it means to say that he's the son of God, right? Because many readers of the Gospels, many people who believed in Jesus, the eternal son of God, nevertheless found themselves puzzled when one particular teacher gathered a following around himself, a man by the name of Arius of Alexandria, And pointed out the obvious fact that Jesus can't be son of God in the literal sense, right? How could Jesus be son of God in the literal sense? You think we're talking about God the father, like Zeus and Hera the mother, and then they have a little baby God, Apollo? That's good Greek theology. It's terrible Christian theology, right? Nobody ever thought that was true. Arius points that out. He says, yeah, we say Jesus is the son of God, of course. But it's just a metaphor. Now, can you see why he was concerned about that? Can you see why Christians didn't want to say Jesus is the son of God in the way that Apollo is God, the son of God? You understand that? That makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Arius said, so we have to believe that Jesus is, in fact, he's the son of God, In a metaphorical sense, it means that he is a created being who, like David, has been honored with a special title. What do you do 
If language like son of God, if what God is doing in Christ turns out to be something that you can't easily describe either as literal, that sounds too much like the Greek gods, or as metaphorical, that sounds too much like just a simple everyday David or king or something like that with an honorific title. It's the folks at Nicaea that figure out a way to talk about this. Do you remember how this works? Do you remember that central paragraph that focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we believe? The only begotten Son of God? That's puzzling language already. Do you remember begotten? you remember the begats? If you have a King James Bible, then you're used to thinking about how Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. We don't use that word very much anymore. But to beget means to produce from a male parent. That's what that means. It's a stallion, begets a colt, right? The, the male begets and the female conceives and the result is a baby. It's an old way of talking. We don't talk that way anymore. But the New Testament does, doesn't it? For it's ready to say, even at the risk of sounding as though this is too literal, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus comes from his Father the way that my Son comes from me. Oh, but wait a minute. I mean, that sounds silly, doesn't it? And so right away, the creed explains that there's something very different going on. For Jesus is... Begotten of his father before all worlds. That is, there wasn't, that the, the before all worlds tends to mean all ages, all times, all creation. Before there was any such thing as before, that's when the begetting took place. It's not that God was not a father before, and then he had a son, begot a son, and then he became father. Oh no, the father and the son were Before all worlds were there together, the Son coming forth from the Father. He is God of God. This is not like saying God of gods, right? It's not like this is the one true God who's above all the other kind of small g gods or something like that. This is God the Son coming from God the Father. What? How can that happen before all worlds? Of course, it's unimaginable. It's incomprehensible in some way. This is the one who, down the line, he's begotten, not made. Jesus is the one, this son comes forth in a way that is associated with God's own nature. Not like I make a bench, or like Heidi makes a meal, or like an author makes a story. That's something that comes from my will, from my mind. No, my son comes from me, from my body, from my nature. Jesus is begotten, not made. He comes from the nature of God and is God by nature for that reason. Being of one substance with the Father. He's the same thing that God the Father is. Has the same being that God the Father has. And yet, we're not talking about three gods. 
We're talking about God the Father and God the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All right, listen. I said this wouldn't go on for long, didn't I? But once you get to the Nicene Creed, you are deep in the mystery of what God made known about himself and then of what that God accomplished. Um, He came down from heaven, this eternal God, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us. Oh, friends, there is more going on here than anybody had ever guessed. Son of God in a way that you might have thought was impossible. But this God, the Son, took on a nature like yours and mine and died. Right? People were giving thanks long before they understood what was going on. I gather, if you are like me, you might still want to say that the Trinity is something of a mystery. And we give thanks without fully understanding it. Thanksgiving is an act of faith. Get the idea? All right, listen. Let's, let's wrap this up, shall we? Um, I do hope that you have had a great Thanksgiving. I hope that you have had a Thanksgiving that has invited you to remember things, good gifts from God in the past, that come right up into the present. I hope that your Thanksgiving has invited you to anticipate blessings in the future. I hope so. I also will invite you. Think about that verse in Ephesians 5. Invite you in all things to give thanks by faith in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not always an easy thing to do. I get that. Some of us have good things going on now. And we give thanks in the name of Jesus. Maybe that means recognizing that he is doing more things than we guess. But we're glad for the things that we can see. Others of us are seeing harder things, aren't we? Is that you? Are you afraid? Can you give thanks in the name of Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there. In your fear. Or are you. Just weary. Give thanks. In the name. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is doing more than you would have guessed. Are you perchance. Unbelieving. That might mean you're having trouble just. Keeping up with the Lord. Give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus. He is patient even with our unbelief. He will help us to believe when we're approaching him. Are you maybe dealing with unbelief in a larger way? Have you come to join us this morning? And you are not really sure about this whole Christianity thing. Maybe it's interesting, sociological experiment. Um, Maybe there's all sorts of things that you don't find to be particularly compelling about the faith. Well, if that's you, then let me wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Let me invite you, too, to give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If you are expecting merely to have a nice little deity whom you can give thanks to as you sit around your heavily laden table, if you're wanting just a calm, tame little God that you can give thanks to, well, give thanks in the name of Jesus. And you might find that there is more going on than you expected. This is no tame deity. More like a roaring lion. Be ready for that. Will you pray with me together as we go forward? Lord our God, in Jesus' name, we have um, followed some twists and turns. We have tried to plunge more deeply into your reality than we have the tools to go. And yet, in the name of Jesus, we go there. And we give you thanks this day in the assurance that what you are doing is larger than we get But you will do it and we will see the glory of God. Go ahead of us, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, friends. Happy Thanksgiving. You're dismissed.